Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. And here we are at the fourth lecture on environmental cases, uh, case studies uh, dealing with various types and, and classifications of environmental chemicals in the environment. Uh, today's lecture, what we'll do is finish up with three extraordinarily interesting, uh, from a personal basis, uh, the, these case studies. Uh, the personal basis is that uh, all three of these I have intimate, either personal or familial uh, contact with these sites. Uh, uh, the first site that uh, we're going to talk about, uh, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, my brother-in-law is actually one of the on-site managers of the cleanup. Uh, the Chemdyne site in Hamilton, Ohio is actually the place where I went to high school and some of the activities, not all of them, happened uh, while I was living in Hamilton, Ohio. And I know many community members that were personally affected by this particular local tragedy. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about a very interesting uh, case study uh, dealing with uh, how the U.S. military is decommissioning and realigning some of the bases that they have not only here but uh, around the world. Our learning objectives to follow up on this is that we are going to explore the environmental challenges of the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. This is the RMA. It's in Colorado. Uh, they did uh, uh, some chemical warfare, munitions, and pesticides uh, development there uh, back in the 40s and the 50s, up and through the 70s, and in a certain sense, recommissioning or decommissioning this site, a uh, very complex contaminated site, and that is close to uh, downtown uh, Denver, Colorado, recommissioning this as a national wildlife refuge. The next case study, we'll try to look at the environmental effects, some of the chemical fade and transport and receptors, and we'll take a very engineering, uh, especially subsurface hydrology engineering approach to the Chemdyne site in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, Chemdyne was a waste recycling uh, facility for chemical waste, industrial byproducts. Uh, this is a worst case scenario if uh, a facility like this happens. It was mismanaged and in fact impacted a large sector. This cleanup, uh, even though it happened decades ago or started decades ago, is still underway and we'll talk about the complexity of subsurface transport in reviewing this case study. Finally, we'll do a short uh, uh, vignette on environmental cleanup and a transition of Midway Island uh, uh, from a naval air station, this is World War II Naval Air Station, and again to a bird sanctuary uh, for over two million uh, nesting birds. This one's quite interesting in that this is your uh, classic El Napple site, uh, light aqueous phase liquids, and so primarily, as you can imagine, for a refueling station, uh, a little island almost in the middle of nowhere, uh, that uh, it actually was the gas station for many of the planes and ships in the Pacific Theater during World War II. With that, it had a tremendous potential for leakage into the uh, local island environment. We'll review that leakage and how they actually went about cleaning it up, oh, about uh, eight to 10 years ago. Well, to start off, let's talk about the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, the RMA, and this is in Colorado. It's located approximately about 10 miles northeast of downtown Denver, Colorado. It's interesting because uh, as you stand on the site, you can look off on the prairie horizon, and uh, just above the heads of the prairie dogs, you see the skyscrapers of downtown Denver. What's also interesting is from a development point of view, this part of the country has undergone tremendous development along the Front Range uh, uh, Mountains there, and uh, this is a unique open area 
And in fact, what we're going to do is talk about how they are now transitioning this into a national wildlife refuge, as well as doing on-site management of many of the contaminants from its decades worth of industrial and military uh, chemical uh, manufacturing. Its history goes back to 1942 at the height of World War II when the U.S. Army purchased about 17,000 acres of land. So it's a very large tract of land. They used it to manufacture chemical weapons, uh, one of the approaches to military strategy in World War I and World War II. Uh, the uh, chemicals uh, manufactured there included uh, the, the mustard gas, which is a vesicant or a blistering agent, uh, some nerve gases, white phosphorus, White phosphorus is used in incendiary devices and also in uh, tracer bullets. Uh, when you see that nighttime footage of uh, troops firing bullets that apparently glow in the dark, these are phosphorus-coated bullets. And as well as napalm, essentially a, a, um, a mixture of gasoline uh, or a fuel and uh, a jelly uh, to essentially have a uh, flammable impact in terms of uh, combustion. Now this uh, map gives you a little bit of uh, geography. Colorado is a nice square state. Denver about in the middle. And just as we drop away from Denver is the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. It's kind of a longish box as, as uh, signified by this particular uh, uh, box in this particular map. Its closeness to the downtown metropolitan area is perhaps of greatest interest in terms of receptors. Well, between 1942 and the end of uh, World War II in 1945, the arsenal made about 155,000 tons of chlorine, mustard gas, and arsenic trioxide, as well as about 87,000 tons of various chemical products. Uh, private industry at the end of the war was encouraged to lease facilities on this site because, in fact, uh, many of the nerve gas products that are used, uh, sarin gas, for example, is an organophosphate compound. And we've talked about organophosphate compounds in the context of neurotoxicity and in the context of cholinesterase inhibition. So in fact, what happened was some chemical companies that did agricultural pesticides, agricultural insecticides, saw the manufacturing facilities at RMA as being advantageous to their marketplace as well. What happened was Julius Hyman and company GHC began producing pesticides in 1946. In 1952, the Shell Chemical Company acquired this uh, GHC company, and they continued to manufacture pesticides on this particular site until 1982. So this is relatively recent history. Whenever we use agricultural chemicals, whether it's fly spray uh, in the house uh, or uh, ant spray or something in the gardens, or in fact, when it is used in commercial agriculture, culture, uh, those chemicals have to come from somewhere. There has to be a manufacturing facility somewhere. This for Shell Chemical uh, and their pesticide division was one of their manufacturing sites. Shell Chemical made various pesticides, insecticides, and herbicides uh, at the arsenal until about 1982. In the meantime, the Army actually continued uh, uh, producing nerve agent at the site, and this is the Cold War buildup. And this was from 1953 to 1957. Uh, this uh, archival photograph uh, from the Department of the Army shows uh, uh, one-ton canisters of CB gas, chemical biological warfare gas, uh, on a loading platform. 
the Army and various private chemical manufacturers disposed of all the liquid wastes associated with their manufacturing operations in an open uh, basin, a number of open uh, basins, and uh, it was not uh, common practice at this point in time to worry about groundwater, and so these were unlined ditches. Uh, they allowed, uh, because they were unlined, and this was uh, somewhat high uh, prairie, high desert prairie uh, sandy soils, there was potential for leakage. Uh, that leakage was first observed in 1955 by nearby residents that noticed crop damage and then voiced concern about some of the contaminated water, some of the smells coming out of the water that they were pumping out of their wells. As a result of all of this, a line basin, historically called Basin F, and, and in fact, uh, I had the opportunity about three weeks ago to meet uh, an ex-military fellow that uh, later went on to uh, serve in Washington, D.C. in various administrative military capacities, who actually was one of the Department of Defense oversight uh, members uh, that actually did develop uh, Basin F. Basin F was one of the first lined basins in terms of hazardous waste management uh, in the United States. This is a somewhat forward-looking technology in 1956 when we really didn't understand what was going on with groundwater, groundwater hydrology, and what was happening beneath our feet. This uh, basin uh, liner, however, uh, failed uh, pretty imme immediately. Uh, it really was not well constructed. It was constructed out of asphalt, uh, and it was a, just an improperly prepared. So although the idea of lining the basin was a good one, the engineering was not really well developed. And to be honest, uh, uh, they implemented probably the best available strategy they had at that time. This 93-acre asphalt-lined pond was capable of holding 243 million gallons of contaminated liquid. Again, remembering what they are manufacturing there, nerve agents, uh, blistering agents, uh, pesticides, insecticides. So the contamination potential, the lethality and the toxicity of some of the liquids and the byproducts of this particular waste stream was fairly significant. Well, the Army and Shell began a systematic investigation uh, into the contaminations uh, of this in the follow-up of the creation of the EPA and a lot more environmental concern in the 1970s. Beginning in 1974, in, uh, there was a sufficient amount of uh, new regulatory science and regulatory approaches to managing this, including the Army installation uh, restoration program. In 1974, there were some what were referred to as interim response actions, or IRAs. There was quite a few of these, about 14 total. These were cleanup and construction uh, demolition activities uh, to start managing uh, the contamination on site, including the groundwater contamination. Uh, from that time uh, to a recent history, over one billion gallons of groundwater were pumped up and treated uh, each year. Uh, this is a fairly significant uh, engineering accomplishment, just not only for the size, but for the lethality of the toxic agents. Now remember, all of this activity on this particular site was going on uh, literally only a few miles away from downtown Denver, from the surrounding communities, and so there was a tremendous amount of community interaction at the local, at the state, and also cooperatively at the federal and military levels. And so there had to be a lot of discussions around a table on what was the best way to deal with this high level of highly toxic uh, contamination.
Some of the groundwater contaminants uh, that uh, were observed, uh, DIMP, diisopropyl methyl phosphonate, uh, this was one of the byproducts of nerve gas formation. You can see the phosphate group from the organophosphorus. Uh, there were pesticides, uh, solvents, arsenic fluoride, and various other chemicals, including chloride from chlorine manufacture. Most of the health risks on the site uh, can be tied to four chemicals, and so this is when we do the COPEX constituents of potential concern, and then we go to the next level in terms of how much is there and how available is are the chemicals uh, that are there, and what is the hazard quotient associated with those chemicals. When we did that reduction, we found that uh, aldrin, dieldrin, uh, two uh, organochlorine insecticides, um, dibromo, di, uh, dibromochloropropane, uh, DBCP, uh, an herbicide, and uh, arsenic uh, were the primary chemicals of risk-mediated concern. Now, these COPEX uh, that also appeared on site are things like semivolatile organic compounds like chlorocetic acid, dicyclopentadiene, hexachlorocyclopentadiene as well. Some VOCs are volatile organic compounds, and these often are quite uh, simply uh, classified as solvents, but things like benzene and carbon tet, uh, chloroform chlorbenzene, dibromochloropropane, DBCP, dichloroethane, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, a lot of chlorinated solvents used in manufacture, but also in synthesis of many of these chemicals. Some of the metals on site, arsenic, uh, because of the arsenic trioxide, uh, chemical warfare agent, uh, cadmium, chromium, lead, and mercury. And so we're starting to see that we have a mixed waste problem, mixed waste from the point of view of inorganics and organics. Some apparent compound pesticides as well as their metabolites, uh, aldrin, chlordane, DDE, DDT, dieldrin, endrin, and isodrin. Uh, this right here is uh, more than half of the list of the dirty dozen pesticides. These are the historical uh, persistent bioaccumulative and toxic uh, agricultural chemicals that uh, literally starting in the 70s, and, and if uh, you look at uh, Rachel Carson's readings, uh, probably even in the late 50s, were recognized as problem chemicals that need to be dealt with in a very, very uh, uh, significant fashion to mitigate any potential toxicosis associated with their use. And in fact, it is probably best if they are not used in agriculture. Well, following this, uh, there was a pollution control and cleanup uh, agenda. Uh, currently, there are no chemicals or chemical weapons produced or stored at the RMA, and this pretty much, again, stopped in the 1980s. Uh, there have been high-level contamination of uh, various environmental media. The buildings that manufacture, this is the nerve gas plant uh, at the uh, um, Rocky Mountain Arsenal. Uh, there are some remnants that exist uh, throughout the site. Uh, in 2001, it was on the national news that one of the cleanup crews that was excavating on site uncovered uh, five sarin bomblets uh, about the size of grapefruits uh, containing active nerve gas. Uh, these were not documented. Uh, they essentially just were buried somewhere. Uh, subsurface shallow, and uh, they uh, uncovered them with heavy equipment. Uh, this creates a great deal of community concern, as you can imagine, that uh, there is essentially a discovery of active sarin bomblets uh, only a few miles away from residential areas. 
In terms of the remediation approach to uh, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, one of the biggest and most uh, highly engineered solutions to the problems, especially the liquid waste that had been impounded in some of the uh, basins uh, on site, as well as the pump and treat facilities, was the development of the SQI, or the Submerged Quenched Incinerator. This was a very impressive uh, engineering development, the idea uh, that uh, uh, you could incinerate the organics being pulled off of this uh, uh, pumped water from a pump and treat operation, but that you quench even the fumes from the incineration process through another water channel to strip out even some reactive byproducts. The idea here is that even the combustion byproducts and even when we have what is referred to as destruction removal efficiency, DREs greater than six nines, and that's 99.9999% destruction, that even when we have that, we have significant amount of potential trace contaminant still in the incineration plume. And so the idea was we not only will do the primary incineration, but that we will quench the uh, gaseous contaminants coming off of the incineration through water to strip it out to make it even cleaner because of the toxicity of some of these compounds. This, I am sure, was a product of negotiation with some of the surrounding community members because remember that there are very nervous citizens living downwind of this facility wondering whether or not they are going to be gassed by some of the products that are being managed on this site. It did uh, actually treat some of the more contaminated wastes, 11 million wastes on site, about 11 million gallons of the Basin F uh, liquids and decontamination water. Uh, because it had served its purpose, it was actually demolished uh, when all uh, related activities were completed with Basin F in May 1996. There was a tremendous amount of construction. This was an active military base, military operation, uh, military manufacturing. And so many of the facilities, which date to the 1940s, uh, had to be demolished just because of the contamination in the structures themselves. This one is Building 4112. Uh, this was the mustard gas, uh, mustard agent uh, manufacturing facility. It was also demolished in uh, 1995. Uh, what you can imagine is that all of the people working on the site have tremendous levels of PPE or personal protection gear on uh, to prevent contamination. In fact, one of the biggest challenges in actually uh, decommissioning this site was the fact that, especially on hot summer days, uh, the individuals working in some of these contaminated areas for all intents and purposes had to have uh, full air, essentially scuba suits, uh, uh, which uh, when uh, an individual is uh, laboring uh, under the hot uh, Colorado sun in summertime, you've got probably 15 to 30 minutes maximum of actual work time before you have to uh, disrobe and uh, go take a break because of the heat and the discomfort associated with these. And this has to do with managing these highly toxic uh, compounds. Now, what, uh, what did happen in terms of managing the on-site waste? The idea was, well, we can't really take uh, some of these contaminated materials uh, anywhere else in terms of managing them any further. And so let's develop an on-site landfill, but to modern standards, uh, engineered uh, for 100-plus years of, of geochemical uh, and geostability. Uh, and so what they did is they developed a triple-line on-site capped landfill 
And this will be, uh, this is the repository for much of the uh, RMA waste. Uh, some of the building structure materials, materials that can't be cleaned, things like wood, uh, where the chemicals have impregnated the wood. Uh, whereas, for example, some of the metals that they, uh, and steel structures, they can actually uh, clean those for recycling. Now, what's important to, to consider here is that during all of this, there was some involvement by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, this began in 1986, uh, especially after a communal roost of bald eagles, uh, which is uh, then an endangered species, was discovered on site. Uh, this down here gives an idea of a uh, historical photograph from the 1950s of the Colorado Prairie, what it looked like uh, before uh, RMA really grew and developed into uh, the massive manufacturing complex it became. Uh, because there was quite a bit of open space, and the open space had to do with buffering uh, what was recognized even from the beginning as a very toxic site and toxic operations, uh, they found that uh, this had become a little bit of a reservoir community uh, for all of the development uh, that surrounded Denver, including the new Denver Stapleton Airport. So it was soon discovered by uh, biological uh, analyses uh, that there were about 300 wildlife species uh, associated with that, including deer, coyotes, and owls. And so there's fairly abundant resources on this highly contaminated site. So 1992, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge Act actually designated the arsenal to become a national wildlife refuge once cleanup is completed. And so now you've got the biology uh, fish and wildlife managers working hand in hand in terms of detoxifying and creating habitat of what, of what was once uh, a highly contaminated uh, environment. Think of this also in terms of our risk assessment, risk management discussions in that there are primary concerns about land use involved in risk management. And this is probably not an area, even if you clean up most of the materials, this is probably not an area that you want to have residentials, uh, communities develop, schools, uh, parks, and, and kids. However, having the ability to return this to, uh, for lack of a better term, contaminated prairie or lightly contaminated prairie, but a place where perhaps uh, in landfills uh, uh, under the surface there might be some particularly hazardous materials, that uh, returning the surface uh, to its uh, prairie ecology is probably an appropriate mechanism, appropriate management uh, for this particular site. What we're going to do here is show a quick video for you um, that will explain this uh, from the point of view of uh, the people that are managing the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. It'll go in and detail uh, some of the cleanups, uh, some of the challenges in terms of the diversity and dispersion of the chemicals uh, on site, and as well give you some historical footage to identify uh, what happened, when, and uh, why in a certain sense our generation is being tasked with the management uh, of this particular risk site. Each new day brings with it another sign that the Rocky Mountain Arsenal continues its journey into becoming one of the premier urban wildlife refuges in the country. The Arsenal is a 27-square-mile facility located just 10 miles northeast of downtown Denver. This rolling prairie was settled by farmers who worked the soil for generations until the U.S. government purchased the land so the Army could produce chemical weapons during World War II. 
Following the war, various companies leased arsenal facilities, including Shell Chemical Company, which produced pesticides. Although widely accepted waste disposal practices were used over the years that the RMA produced weapons and pesticides, contamination did occur in some areas. Soil and groundwater beneath the arsenal became contaminated by the bearing of waste, the use of open basins for evaporation of hazardous liquid, wind dispersion, sewer line leaks, and accidental spills. Today, there are no chemicals or weapons produced or stored at the arsenal, and the cleanup of contamination is underway. The Army is leading the restoration effort with assistance from Shell Oil Company, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and participation from the Environmental Protection Agency, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Tri-County Health Department. The final cleanup plan is outlined in the Record of Decision, or ROD, signed in 1996, and is being expedited by the Remediation Venture Office, or RVO, made up of the Army, Shell, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Throughout its history, the arsenal has always served as a home for a variety of wildlife. This combination of prairie, shrubland, woodlands, and wetlands supports nearly 300 different species of animals. Congress has directed the Fish and Wildlife Service to manage the arsenal as if it were a national wildlife refuge. So as the environmental cleanup is taking place, the service is managing education programs, public uses, and the site's abundant wildlife. Once cleanup is complete, the arsenal will officially become part of the National Wildlife Refuge System. During remediation, the Fish and Wildlife Service monitors wildlife on site. Monitoring the wildlife helps the service determine possible effects of contamination and impacts remediation activities have on the fish and wildlife populations. Samples taken at the arsenal indicate that contaminants have affected some wildlife, mainly in the manufacturing areas located in the center of the site. However, wildlife generally are healthy and their conditions are expected to improve as cleanup continues. The Army and Shell carefully examined the contaminated sites at the arsenal. More than 50,000 samples were taken from the ground and surface water, air, soil, and structures. The findings are summarized in some 230 reports. The contaminants of greatest concern include chemical munition byproducts, pesticides, heavy metals, and solvents. More than 320 locations of suspected contamination were examined, and of those, 178 sites containing measurable levels of contamination were identified. Most of those contaminated sites are in the central sections of the arsenal. In and around manufacturing complexes, solid and liquid waste disposal areas, basins, and sewer lines. Some of the cleanup, which began as early as 1979 at the arsenal, is complete. Interim response actions, or IRAs, were used to contain or eliminate contamination problems while final cleanup solutions were determined. Examples of IRAs include the excavation of the Basin F disposal pond and the destruction of its liquid waste by the submerged quench incinerator. In a two-year period, the incinerator safely destroyed more than 11 million gallons of hazardous liquid. Once the IRA was complete, the incinerator was dismantled and removed from the arsenal in 1995. The 14 completed interim response actions include the closure of the hydrazine rocket fuel blending facility, dust control, asbestos removal, wastewater treatment, covering and revegetation of disposal areas, 
and the removal of chemical and weapons manufacturing equipment. Some structures, such as cleaned metal storage tanks and piping, were shipped off-site and recycled. One of the first IRAs, the Boundary Groundwater Treatment Facilities, cleans contaminated groundwater before it is put back into the aquifer. Nearly one billion gallons of water are treated each year. These systems will continue to be an integral part of treating contamination at the arsenal well into the future to assure that polluted groundwater will not leave the arsenal. There are not any significant levels of air contamination. In fact, Rocky Mountain Arsenal air quality is superior to that of nearby urban areas when compared to air pollution standards. Air quality monitoring and odor monitoring will continue throughout all phases of cleanup activities to ensure continued safety of workers, visitors, and nearby communities. As mentioned earlier, the final cleanup plan for the arsenal is outlined in the ROD. It took years of study, litigation, and public meetings with interested residents in the surrounding communities to reach the agreement on a cleanup program. The agreement requires that all cleanup actions meet or exceed state and federal health and safety standards. Public involvement ensured, among other things, there will be no incineration of soil, dust and odor issues will be controlled through each remediation project, and that new water would be supplied to residents whose wells were affected by the contamination. The public is also an integral part of the advisory organizations assisting the arsenal. A medical monitoring advisory group was created to establish a medical monitoring program for communities surrounding the arsenal. The Rocky Mountain Arsenal Wildlife Society was formed as a non-profit organization dedicated to helping the refuge through financial support and direct volunteering. The Restoration Advisory Board serves as a forum for local communities, the RVO, and regulatory agencies to work together in an atmosphere that encourages discussion and the exchange of information about the remediation. A milestone was reached when the first of 31 remediation projects outlined in the ROD was completed in early 1998, the Sanitary and Chemical Sewer Plugging Project. More than 250 manholes and 130 sewer lines were removed or plugged to prevent access and block potential pathways for contamination of groundwater. Of all of the projects underway, it is the on-post hazardous waste landfill that is the cornerstone of the cleanup program. The landfill will accept waste from 18 different cleanup projects. The completed landfill will feature double and triple lined cells and will be capped with a multi-layered, fully protective, vegetated soil cover. The landfill accepts only material from the arsenal and is equipped with a leak detection and collection system and a groundwater monitoring system. Almost all of the structures at the arsenal will be demolished. They include buildings, foundations, basements, tanks, pipelines, and other man-made items. Those structures with significant levels of contamination will also be placed in the landfill. The landfill will also contain the most contaminated soil from the arsenal. Areas where concentrations of soil contamination may not present much of a threat to animals will be placed in Basin A as fill. Structures that pose no contamination threat will also be placed in Basin A, which will be covered with a rock layer to prevent contact with wildlife and protect the public. Researchers are testing to see if a natural soil and vegetation cover will produce the same results as a traditional plastic man-made cover. The natural soil cover is considered more environmentally friendly and cost-effective.
Another aspect of the soil remediation deals with shell and army disposal trenches. These trenches have underground walls built around them and have a cover design that meets or exceeds federal and state regulations. The total cost of the cleanup, including money spent to date by the Army and Shell, is approximately $2 billion. Cleanup is projected to be completed between the year 2007 and 2011, depending on the manner in which Congress allocates funds to the Army. Both during and after the active cleanup program, on-site visitor and worker safety is a top priority. Access is carefully regulated. Much of the arsenal is already safe for visitors and more areas will become accessible as the cleanup is completed. During the cleanup, appropriate revegetation and mitigation of some of the habitat will occur, including close to 10,000 acres of native shortgrass prairie. A number of habitat research and enhancement programs are well underway, including seeding programs, weed control, and propagation and irrigation projects to enhance the native prairie. The Fish and Wildlife Service also is closely managing and protecting various species at the arsenal, such as the bald eagle, America's national symbol. In 1986, a communal roost of bald eagles was discovered on site. The arsenal is an important winter destination point for this once endangered species. As many as 80 eagles roost nightly during winter months in cottonwood groves along First Creek and at the Arsenal's lakes, attracted by the nearby prairie dog population and relative lack of human disturbance. Prairie dogs are the main food source for wintering bald eagles at the Arsenal. Prairie dog burrows also serve as shelter for burrowing owls, rabbits and rattlesnakes. From hawks and deer to coyotes and great horned owls, it is the great diversity of wildlife that attracts so many visitors. And there is no age limit when it comes to learning about wildlife and nature. The Fish and Wildlife Service works in cooperation with groups in the community and has organized an active corps of volunteers to assist wildlife researchers and conduct programs for the public. The public will continue to be an important part of the Arsenal's outreach program, which includes meetings for discussion on cleanup, environmental education, tours of the Arsenal, and continued participation in the many programs underway. The Rocky Mountain Arsenal is moving ahead into the next phase of its history as it is transformed into a wildlife refuge. This new refuge will be one of the largest urban refuges and among more than 500 national wildlife refuges across the country. A safe, successful cleanup will allow the arsenal to return to its roots as a sanctuary for its wildlife inhabitants. The Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge will continue to provide more educational and recreational opportunities for its many neighbors who truly appreciate the joys of nature and become a true asset to the people of Colorado. Well, that uh, video gives you a, a, a little bit of a, a more dynamic uh, view of this particular site, uh, as well as some of the archival footage of uh, the historical uh, contamination, how things happen. Uh, uh, in a certain sense, uh, because I, I still do have a brother-in-law working on site, uh, I can report that this is uh, still an active uh, uh, cleanup site. Uh, it's actively being managed, actively being cleaned up, and will probably be uh, active for about another 10 years or so. Our next uh, case is the Chemdine Hamilton, Ohio site. Uh, this also has some personal interest 
uh, for me because I went to high school in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, Hamilton, Ohio is uh, just north of Cincinnati, Ohio. I'll show you that in a map here in a moment. Uh, this site is uh, uh, from a 10-acre uh, waste management site, uh, went by the name of Chemdyne. It was operated as an industrial chemical waste transfer disposal and storage facility uh, on the edge of town. They're actually quite close to the downtown area. Hamilton uh, has a population of approximately 90,000 people, so this is not a small town, small community. Uh, it's a blue-collar industrial uh, community. Uh, there's a paper mill in town, uh, uh, Mosier Safe Company uh, in town. Uh, many of the banks uh, across the United States have uh, safes from, from the Mosier Safe Company, and it used to be involved in auto parts manufacturing uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, the problem with the Chemdyne site, in terms of where it is in the community, it's located about uh, a thousand feet uh, from a residential area. So here you've got an industrial chemical waste management facility essentially right up next to residential areas and, in fact, uh, a recreational park and play fields. Uh, this is a quite dramatic, uh, I don't know, perhaps poor planning in terms of the city fathers that allowed this sort of industrial activity to occur in uh, what amounts to a residential area. This is part of, for example, what some people refer to as environmental justice concerns, the fact that quite often we find these uh, fairly contaminated processes happening in areas uh, like it was in Hamilton uh, of lower income, uh, poverty level individuals. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation uh, that uh, is a part of our environmental history. In uh, the Chemdyne plant, this is a chemical waste processing plant uh, on site. Uh, there were about 250 chemical waste generators that had contracted with Chemdyne to essentially take care of their problem, to take care of their chemical waste at these industries. And these are sometimes very uh, named industries like PPG, Pittsburgh Paint and Glass. Uh, you may have used PPG products yourself in a certain sense. Before there was a RICRA law, before there was uh, even some Superfund law, um, there was a little bit of the wild, wild west in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, in terms of managing hazardous waste, uh, even actively produced, managed, uh, actively produced hazardous waste. The Chemdyne facility had an operational lifetime of 1974 to 1980, so it was only six years of operation, uh, but it was six years uh, long enough to create quite a mess. There were 50,000 uh, drums of waste uh, stored on site at the height of operations. These are 55-gallon drums, industrial-sized drums. If you can imagine the problems of putting that uh, in, a regular, in a residential neighborhood. Chemdyne uh, demonstrated uh, tremendously poor waste handling practices. Uh, sometimes there was purposeful on-site spillage uh, of various chemicals. Uh, uh, this had to do with uh, perhaps the lack of oversight, regulatory infrastructure, uh, and uh, midnight operations, if you will, of uh, digging a ditch and emptying a barrel into it. In a certain sense, in this particular uh, regulatory environment, in this uh, uh, community environment perhaps, uh, there was an economic incentive to cheat. Uh, a drum that you poured into a ditch uh, that you laid out on a country road, 
was uh, a drum that you didn't have to worry about, that essentially someone gave you some money to manage this, to do some incineration or waste management on it. They handed off their waste to you. It wasn't their problem anymore. In a certain sense, if you cut some corners uh, on managing that waste, your profit margins could be higher. Uh, there were direct discharge of uh, liquid waste into storm drains uh, or sewers, and on site there was mixing of incompatible waste. These are some of the activities that are cited in the regulatory reports. I can also tell you that because I know people who know people in this particular uh, situation that uh, the Chemdyne uh, folks were doing some tremendously uh, uh, violative activities. Uh, things like taking tanker trucks out onto country roads, uh, opening up the drain valves, and then taking a midnight drive until all of the waste had emptied out of the tanker trucks. Uh, the people uh, managing this uh, were, in fact, uh, environmental criminals of the highest degree. Uh, they did uh, get pursued on, in that, and you can actually Google around on the Internet and find out some of the uh, legal aspects of the prosecution of the owners of this particular company. Chemdyne, as I said, is located in Hamilton, Ohio, so we're down here in the southeastern corner of uh, uh, Ohio. Uh, just north of Cincinnati, not far from the Indiana and Kentucky border. They call us the tri-state area. Um, uh, what this is is a relatively blue collar. We're getting kind of into that whole rust, rust belt uh, area of uh, uh, manufacturing in the United States. Uh, and in a certain sense, uh, this a facility here could deal with the manufacturing uh, operations in the eastern uh, as well as the Midwest part of the United States. This is uh, an overview map of Hamilton, Ohio, and I've done this just to address uh, some of the problems in terms of uh, groundwater flow. Uh, Chemdyne is the site here in red. I've put a red outline on this. Uh, this is the downtown part of the most urban area of Hamilton. You start getting into more residential areas down here. What's of interest, and I'll tell you why, it was the uh, paper mill, um, uh, was uh, Champion Papers uh, associated here. I, in fact, worked a couple summer jobs at the paper mill. Uh, my high school was uh, over in this direction on this map. This is the Great Miami River, and it's flowing in this direction. You can see it in the blue. Uh, what I want you to identify is that there, in fact, is a canal here, a small canal that runs right uh, next to the Chemdyne site. They call it the Ford Canal, give you a little bit of location. There is a manufacturing facility here, a metal manufacturing facility, so there are people working right next to the site here. There's also the uh, community power plant, which is a coal-fire power plant right here. There's a couple of little uh, retention dams here. Uh, and then uh, also, uh, you need to know about groundwater dynamics here. Groundwater flow is in general in this particular direction, and so you're uh, going to have some sort of influence between the flow of the Greater Miami River uh, and uh, the groundwater here. And, but I also want to alert you to the operations in a paper mill. Paper and pulp mills are always located near water bodies because these industrial operations use a tremendous amount of water. Uh, in this particular case, the pumps uh, from these plants uh, used wells uh, that actually did have some uh, dramatic impact on uh, groundwater levels that are important in the groundwater dynamics, as you'll see in this particular case. 
Now, this is a little bit of closer up uh, map. This is our red area, the Chemdine site here. Here's the Ford Canal coming in next to it. Uh, and uh, in fact, here's the uh, Great Miami River uh, coming down here. So you've got the power plants and uh, materials, uh, power plant operations uh, over here. There's Champion Paper facilities. Uh, what's interesting, you can see that this is referred to as the North End Athletic Field. In fact, this is ball fields uh, historically uh, next to this industrial site. Uh, this is all residential area right here. So essentially right across the street from this site uh, was a residential area. Well, so the, in terms of the history of this particular site, uh, chemical wastes uh, were trucked on this site beginning in 1974. Uh, wastes that were unsuitable for recycling or recovery via like distillation or separation uh, were actually stored in drums and tanks on the site or shipped uh, to other disposal sites. Uh, some of these activities again were driving into the forest and opening up and dumping. Uh, there's been some tremendous uh, uh, problematic, uh, again, case histories of, of illegal dumping going on with this particular operation. There are more than 30,000 drums of waste and about 300,000 gallons of bulk waste materials that were left on site when the operations ended in 1980. Again, 30,000 drums, 55-gallon drums, uh, some of these in very poor condition. Uh, during its operation, a number of environmental incidents were reported in 1976-1979. There were at least five fish kills in the Great Miami River that were attributable to the Chemdine facility. So there was a release, how that release was happening, whether it was storm drain release or release that was coming through groundwater infiltration into the uh, uh, Great Miami River. Uh, one of the fish kills stretched for 37 miles. Now recall that we did not have a huge body of environmental law in the early 1970s, things like uh, NEPA, uh, natural resources damages. Uh, some of these things uh, were less actionable than they would be today uh, in terms of legal uh, potential for uh, recovery. Uh, there were fires that occurred in the site in 1976 and 1979. I graduated from high school in 1973. My friends, uh, even though I was uh, 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 on the other part of the state uh, during these fires, my friends that witnessed this said the sky was lit up with some of these fires. Uh, one of them particularly dramatic uh, was um, shooting uh, some of these 55-gallon drums up into the air uh, like missiles. Uh, some of these missiles actually uh, exceeded the tops of the uh, smokestacks from the nearby power plants. So they went up several hundred feet uh, in the air. Again, uh, think of yourself as being a resident, a nearby resident in this particular site. Um, I did have some anecdotal information, some conversations that, uh, and there was an investigation uh, about this fire that there may have been arson involved and the arson may have uh, been linked uh, to individuals that were actually working in the metalworking plant uh, next door. You have to remember that here's people that are showing up for a nine to five job every day next to doing their job uh, and managing uh, their environment in a relatively responsible way. But the fumes that were coming from the industrial facility next door were actually making many of the workers sick. And so there's some anecdotal evidence and some uh, comments among friends that uh, maybe somebody went over there and put an end to it because they were sick and tired of being sick uh, from the fumes they had to breathe every day from this next door facility. 
Next door to this, uh, as you recall, that was from the maps, was the Ford Canal, and the Ford Canal uh, flowed into the Great Miami River. So anything that came off of the site that got into the canal. Now this was an industrial canal that drained many industrial areas that went by some of the uh, automobile parts manufacturing plants and so there was a level of contamination. Uh, it was only used for drainage. There was a little bit of a hydraulic dam operation there. Um, the Great Miami River, however, is used for recreation uh, and recreational fishing. The water supplies in the area rely uh, on groundwater for their source, so if you contaminate local groundwater, you contaminate uh, the uh, drinking water resource for a substantial part of the community. This is uh, what it looked like on my last visit uh, to the area, which was in 2000. Uh, this is looking um, across uh, the field of Chemdine. Uh, the Ford Canal is behind here along this tree line. You can see that right now it's just an open field. You'll see wellheads here. Uh, these are wellheads that are connected to a pump and treat operation. I'll show you in a second. The pump and treat uh, uses uh, volatile removals uh, uh, to, to remove some of the solvents out of uh, the groundwater. It's now operated by the Chemdine Trust. The Chemdine Trust is a recovery, a financial recovery trust of all of the PRPs, the potentially responsible parties, all of the manufacturing operations uh, that contributed waste to the Chemdine site were actually li legally liable uh, in historical uh, terms from Superfund legislation. And so, in fact, uh, they had to pay up for the, for the ongoing cleanup of this particular site. The idea is to pump and treat to remove this, and we'll see how they came to that whole pump and treat, and we'll talk about some of the current challenges they have in this site. Uh, this is what it looks like. You can see the well heads in terms of monitoring wells, uh, but uh, there are wells on site that are pump wells where they pump the groundwater. They take it up in this volatiles removal, and what they do is they run a fast current of air back trick, uh, beyond trickling water. It allows the volatiles to be released. The volatiles are, are then uh, taken in a gas stream uh, to uh, a, either a liquid recovery unit or uh, a little miniature incinerator. Uh, and the idea is to strip or to vapor strip uh, out these on the basis of their Henry's Law constant. This uh, is in operation. It's manned every day. It's pumping and treating. And so you can imagine having uh, been in place for a considerable amount of time, the amount of water that's been treated uh, is uh, uh, exceeds a billion gallons. This is uh, what the facility looks like if I stand on the bank of the Ford Canal. And so again, here's the air stripping unit. And uh, this is where the personnel operating the site. But this is the contaminated field. And this is uh, where the monitoring wells are. And this is the metal manufacturing facility uh, that was unrelated to the site, just happened to be next door. And across the street, you can see some of the residential areas uh, associated with this site. Where the Ford Canal comes into uh, the Greater Miami River, here you can see the, the power plant. Uh, I talked about the drums during the fire were being blasted in the air greater at a height greater than uh, the uh, power plant. There was a newspaper article that showed a very dramatic picture of a, of a, uh, a drum being uh, uh, exploded up into the air. But you can see that, in fact, uh, the Ford Canal uh, entry right here uh, and in fact, the day I was there, um, which was again in 2000, uh, there were people that were fishing. This is a recreational fishery. This is uh, up on the Ford Canal. 
this gives you an idea of the size and the dynamic. This is a sampling boom out here. Uh, those are actually my two kids and uh, my young niece uh, on the border here. Uh, the idea, again, this does look like it would be contaminated. Uh, this is something that you would find kids playing with and perhaps even people recreating in this canal. As it turns out, the canal sediments are uh, contaminated with a variety of uh, constituents of concern. Uh, downstream from the uh, site, uh, we found polyaromatic hydrocarbons at about one to two parts per million, various uh, solvents like toluene at one part per million, methylphenol, chloridane, uh, chromium and lead uh, are up uh, approaching the hundreds of parts per million in the sediment uh, downstream from this site. So there was active demonstration of contamination from the chemdyne facility. It's interesting also, and I've stepped in this picture across the street, uh, you can see the site in the background, again, just across the street, and we're talking about uh, throwing a rock and being able to hit the chemdyne site. And so uh, here's uh, kids' uh, toys out in the yard, here's uh, the site, uh, this is about 15 years after it was uh, the cleanup started, but historically these residential areas have been there for quite some time. Now, in terms of the contamination, the approach to cleanup of contamination, uh, we in the environmental engineering, environmental management, risk assessment uh, arena actually use Chemdyne as a classroom. Uh, it was one of the largest, most complex sites uh, to be remediated under some of the new hazardous waste management laws uh, that came to play in the 80s. And so in a certain sense, uh, folks have documented Chemdyne uh, in terms of learning uh, from our mistakes because several mistakes were made in approaching the cleanup, the mitigation, the risk management of Chemdyne. Uh, it's a complex site because the groundwater is primarily contaminated with some of these VOCs and uh, heavy metals. Uh, there was no evidence that drinking water supplies uh, were affected in terms of some of the deeper wells. The soil on the site was contaminated with uh, VOCs and pesticides and some organic compounds and heavy metals. The heavy metals included mercury, arsenic, nickel, and beryllium. Uh, some of the on-site buildings were contaminated with PCBs, uh, so the uh, range of contamination is quite significant. If uh, you took a look at uh, drilling some monitoring wells and pulling samples, uh, some of these uh, uh, samples kind of allowed the uh, dynamics of the plume, the subsurface dynamics of the plume uh, to be uh, uh, identified. Uh, what we have in 1983 in terms of the groundwater VOCs and the red zones are 1,000 uh, micrograms per liter, or about one part per million. And so we have high density uh, point sources uh, in these zones here. But as the plume kind of starts uh, moving out, we get down to a, a level of about one-tenth of that out here at the yellow. But you can kind of see that the dynamics, even though the diversity of the point sources are such that they're all across this site, um, you can see that the groundwater dynamics are starting to pull it in this direction, just similar to the map that we showed earlier on in this presentation. In 1980, when EPA came in and its contractors, they stabilized, removed, and disposed about uh, 17 potentially explosive drums. Uh, and they uh, ship those off to a treatment facility. Uh, we manage hazardous waste now with a variety of chemical and physical characteristics like explosiveness, ignition, uh, and a few others. In 1982, 
EPA removed about another 9,000 drums. These are drums that uh, could be removed and uh, solidified. And they also pumped about 200,000 gallons of liquid and solid waste uh, that were available on site in about 33 different storage tanks. And so this was quite a mobilization, just even looking at the pure waste material, not the necessarily the contaminated environmental materials. In 1985, EPA issued a rod or a record of decision, and we'll talk about uh, in our environmental law superfund and records of decision. Records of decision, in short, are just uh, the final uh, decision of uh, the regulatory authorities on what will be done according uh, to the uh, prescribed cleanup of the site, what techniques, what approaches, what timetable is a part of the record of decision. There's cost analyses, there's technology analyses, feasibility and risk analyses that go into this decision-making process. It requires the installation of a system to extract the groundwater and treat it by airstripping, and you saw that facility. Uh, the contaminants are then further treated with activated carbon before being released into the air. Some of the buildings on site were demolished and selected areas of soil were removed. These are ones that uh, had a tremendous amount of uh, stabilized contamination within the soil. And there was a synthetic cap and a clay layer placed over the site. And the reason we do this on these contaminated sites is to prevent infiltration of any more uh, uh, precipitation or surface water that would drive this plume even deeper and farther off of site. Again, our goal in hazardous waste management is TMV, elimination of toxicity, mobility, or volume. A cap will limit mobility. Well, as you saw in the initial site survey map that we showed that the groundwater flowed west towards the Greater Miami River. Uh, there was a shallow trough that flowed parallel to the river, as you would imagine, uh, because uh, the river would scrub out uh, the alluvial material. Uh, there would be more porosity there. There would be a change in water dynamics because of the water that flows in the river. And there was some uh, stream influences from uh, this particular water body. There was an initial survey that concluded that the contaminants already in the aquifer would be discharged uh, into the Greater Miami River and it would not need to be removed. Essentially, uh, it concluded that removal of the top three feet of soil would eliminate uh, the source of the contaminants. The groundwater that's already impacted would drain slowly to the Greater Miami River and it would be treated as a dilution being the solution to pollution over a period of time. What's nice about this is, aha, maybe we are down below critical threshold levels in terms of toxicity. We'll let nature take care of this. It's a low-cost option. Well, as it turns out, this really wasn't an accurate assessment of the subsurface hydrology. Uh, there were some faulty soil sampling uh, procedures, especially with VOCs. Remember, these are volatile organic compounds. Uh, when you sample these, you have to drill a core in what's referred to as a split spoon sampler. Uh, these samples then need to be in tightly containerized vessels to trap the VOCs. Uh, many of these uh, recommended sampling procedures or VOCs were not followed, and so the initial sampling gave some erroneous results. The oily upper surface soils uh, showed high VOCs because of co-salvation of the VOCs by some of the viscous oils and other chemicals. And so we talked about co-salvation in our transport lectures. Uh, what happened was there were some VOCs that were being assisted in their transportation or their sequestration uh, by some of the other contaminants. 
they did not uh, migrate far enough to exert uh, some of this uh, co-salvation beyond the first uh, few feet of the soil profile. There were some additional site investigations. Some of these incorporated uh, a more detailed characterization of the sediments and the natural flow system, some of the vertical profiles that were developed, again, by coring samples to get a better idea of what's going on beneath your feet here. Uh, don't assume uh, the subsurface, especially around uh, water bodies, uh, can be quite complex. Uh, what they finally figured in terms of looking at all of the complex subsurface hydrodynamics where the surface flows were, looking at pump tests, uh, that there were some nearby large industrial wells, especially the one associated with the paper mill, that were actually causing the subsurface gradient to drop dramatically compared to the normal horizon. We saw that in the groundwater demonstrator uh, on lecture, I believe it's 15 or 18. I posted a groundwater simulator. If you watch that, you can see that pumping will change the dynamics. It'll drive things deeper, drive things shallower, depending upon where you're pumping from. And so uh, this pumping the millions of gallons a day being pumped by a paper mill will, in fact, uh, dramatically change uh, the uh, hydrodynamics in the subsurface. Uh, the modeling that was done uh, after this understanding was achieved demonstrated that the plume coming off of the Chemdyne site would actually drop below the area of influence of the Great Miami River. What this implies is that it has the potential to contaminate the deeper drinking water resources. This was a significant observation. To confirm the modeling, there was a major pump test. This is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, what they do is they make, uh, they pull uh, uh, water from uh, some of these test and monitoring wells, and then they watch levels at other wells in terms of uh, are the levels going up or down, what's the rate that they go up and down, to establish uh, dynamics of hydroconductivity, what's connected, what's the rate of change as you pump water from one place to another in the subsurface. All of this information is extraordinarily valuable. However, it was very costly because there was about 100,000 gallons of contaminated water uh, and various uh, individuals associated with the site and the operations because of the complexity and the hazard of this contaminated water. They had to be uh, operated with people in personal air tanks, uh, full personal protection gear. Uh, the monitoring wells and monitoring flow, this helped uh, again explain some of the unusual plume dynamics that were observed in monitoring samples. And it also helped in the design for the pump and treat system that they finally put into play here. As well, Chemdyne was studied for contaminant biotransformations. In a certain sense, uh, our uh, organic chemicals uh, are now have the potential uh, to be acted on by local microbial ecology. Uh, we did see some uh, biodegradation occurring. Uh, some of this had to do with the tetrachloroethylene uh, were dehalogenated to various daughter products, including trichloroethene, dichloroethene, and vinyl chloride. You can see that uh, happening in this particular series on this slide. And so what started out as being a primary contaminant, we now have several contaminants, and it was very interesting in terms of the follow-up analysis to look at the more aged material at the outskirts of the plume actually had a higher degree of biodegradation occurring. The groundwater pump and treat system uh, has been in operation since 1988, and it may continue through uh, as much as 2008 or longer. Uh, my most recent information suggests it is going to be longer because as it has pumped, 
this uh, dynamic has actually started to slow down in terms of the reversal of some of the, there seems to be residual capacity, residual capacity like we talked about in our transport and uh, abiotic uh, processes uh, discussions. So there's some sorption processes, they're not being uh, able to flush it out at the same rate and meet the early success they did in the early years. Approximately three and a half billion gallons of groundwater have been treated and about 31,000 pounds of volatile organic uh, uh, parent compound have been removed uh, from the aquifer. And so this is 31,000 pounds of material that was uh, illegally discharged or wasted to the ground. In terms of the plume reduction, uh, the idea here you can kind of see that uh, over the uh, years from 1986 to 1992, uh, as they started pumping, there was a reduction, a pullback of the plume uh, to lower concentrations. These are the monitoring wells. The purple was the 1992. There were eight shallow extraction wells, seven deeper uh, extraction wells, uh, some injection wells that processed about a million gallons per day. So this is a significant turnover a tremendous expense in terms of pump and treat. Uh, again, there was a protective cap put over the top of this so there wouldn't be infiltration of precipitation. And the plume was reduced from over 10 parts per million to just about 0.3 parts per million. So it's all going in the right direction in terms of uh, mitigating uh, the uh, mobilization of this contaminant in the sur surface. This gives you a graph. Um, of uh, the cumulative mass of VOCs being removed over the time period in uh, most recent history up here to the late 90s. You can see that the dynamics uh, in terms of the pump and treat, they were significant uh, in the earliest stages, the earliest years that seemed to approach a steady state in terms of recovery. But this is the current uh, plateauing effect uh, that uh, at least in the early 2000s, they were looking for a way, is there a way we can accelerate this? Uh, fortunately, this is a shallow aquifer comp contamination incident uh, and there is no drinking water uh, that is being used from this particular aquifer. So in, in terms of the relative risk of the remaining contamination, it's minimal because receptor uh, involvement is minimal. What we try to learn uh, from EPA's uh, management of the Chemdyne site in the 70s and 80s is the role of modeling and calculations uh, associated with this. Uh, many of the contaminants did follow the relative rates of transport that we predicted by sorption principles. So this is good. Anytime you can take a pencil to a piece of paper and work up a model and make some predictions, this is extraordinarily useful in terms of site management. Uh, you can imagine that a pump and treat facility operating at a million gallons a day uh, is probably costing the PRPs tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in terms of its lifespan of history and the amount of money being drilled in to support the Chemdyne Trust for operation. Uh, it was used in the estimating the capacity of the treatment system and the length of the time needed. The prediction that pump and treat would be effective at the interior uh, of the plume but not at the periphery was actually confirmed. This is a modeling result. Uh, air stripping is used extensively and it's actually been a, a reasonable engineering approach in terms of managing the contamination in this water. 
this particular site demonstrated the importance of knowing the natural process parameters. In a certain sense, the earliest stages of the investigation, when uh, people said, okay, this is a shallow aquifer contamination, it's going to drain, we're going to have uh, dilution in the Great Miami River, and we're not going to have to actively manage the site other than sealing off the uh, contaminated soil, was a wrong stance. And in fact, uh, as they really understood the subsurface dynamics, they got to understand a better, stronger approach to managing and mitigating the hazard associated with this contaminated site. This is a pretty dramatic uh, 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 evaluation, follow-up, and uh, learning experience. Uh, this also is searchable in terms of some of the reports, some of the follow-up uh, uh, in terms of the regulatory science documents, the community documents, because it still is being actively managed. Our final case study uh, for today and for this series of four case studies lectures is an interesting one. I thought I'd give you something that was a little bit lighter, perhaps a little bit more fun, if you will, because of its uh, Pacific Island environment. This is Midway Island. This is an aerial view of Midway Island uh, over here. And you can see that in World War II, uh, this was uh, dominated as an, uh, by an airstrip, a military airstrip. It was uh, used as a refueling station because of its strategic location in the Pacific Theater. It's part of the Midway Atoll, and so you can see here's Midway Island. You can see the atoll, and you can see there's actually two smaller islands uh, to the side. But you can see that human activity has dominated this very small island in terms of uh, uh, runways and support uh, facilities uh, on this particular small island. It was, again, a naval air refueling station during World War II. It's only 1,535 acres, so it's quite small. But it's also, because of its strategic location for uh, our uh, Air Force and for pilots, it's also a strategic layover spot for the uh, Pacific Ocean bird uh, uh, nesting migrations and their nesting areas. Uh, there were over 2 million birds uh, actively using this uh, when they counted in the 90s. Uh, as a, uh, uh, a nesting site. You can see that during nesting season, uh, this is an old uh, military uh, uh, gun post. Uh, you can see that, in fact, it's been overtaken uh, by the uh, goonie birds and the various other species. On site, uh, many of these uh, uh, oil tanks, as you would imagine, uh, for the jet fuel and the diesel fuel associated with a refueling station. What's interesting in terms of the uh, dynamics, uh, we're looking at about uh, 3,000 miles from San Francisco, uh, about uh, 2,000 miles uh, from Japan, uh, Hawaii, it's about uh, 1,100 miles uh, here. So you can see that it's somewhat uh, out in the middle of, uh, of nowhere here. And so its strategic value as a refueling station uh, in the Pacific Theater was pretty significant. In uh, the 1990s, the U.S. went through a base realignment and closure program, or BRAC, uh, for many military installations. Many of these were holdovers from World War I, World War II, and uh, the Cold War years. Uh, many of these facilities uh, were, were aged in ancient facilities. Midway Island was one of these. And Congress, uh, uh, with the authority uh, from the president, uh, ordered uh, that these bases uh, be closed and decommissioned. Uh, the operational closer, closure of Midway Island uh, actually happened in 1993. 
In this particular case, we also have a transfer uh, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. This transfer actually happened in 1996. And again, by an act of Congress, it was transitioned to the Midway Island National Wildlife Refuge. And you can see as they did this handover, lowering the flag, you can see uh, the uh, various uh, seabirds uh, in, in the audience. Uh, the Goonie birds, uh, the various uh, uh, bird populations uh, on this island uh, are significant uh, and very colorful in terms of their mating dances, such as the Goonie bird dance here. Uh, it's a significant uh, uh, ecological resource uh, for the Pacific Island uh, nations in terms of bird populations. The range of contamination on this, again, primarily from World War II activities when uh, the U.S. government was far more concerned about uh, uh, military operations than environmental contamination. Uh, jet fuel leaked from underground storage tanks uh, into the atoll's groundwater. There are various old buildings on site. Uh, some of these had asbestos and lead paint. Uh, utility transformers and the PCBs that were associated with the dielectrics of these transformers and uh, various other chemicals, malaria, anti-malaria uh, insecticides like DDT uh, that were used uh, on site. Uh, all of these had the potential and uh, actual result of leaching into the soil. Uh, there were various uh, inorganics and heavy metal contaminants, uh, mercury and lead uh, from old batteries uh, on this particular site. In terms of remediation recovery, uh, the jet fuel and the diesel and the fuel oil uh, that powered uh, some of the electrical generators on site needed to be removed from the atoll's groundwater. That lied about five to eight feet below this uh, sandy surface on this Pacific island. Now remember that these jet fuel, diesel, and bunker fuel oils were actually uh, uh, light non-aqueous phase liquids. Light meaning that they float like an oil slick on water. So again, what happens to review that if we put uh, concentrated oil plume on a sandy soil, gravity will drop it down, especially if it's a dry sandy soil over time. The sand will become saturated, uh, but if that has a sufficient amount of source material, it will drop until it hits the groundwater layer, again, in five to eight feet here, and then start spreading like a oil slick uh, in the subsurface profile. And what's good about that is at least there is a barrier. Um, what's bad about that is there is a potential for contamination of the water, uh, low level, even though these are immiscible uh, uh, contaminants. Uh, uh, the potential for trace amounts of organic materials to enter the water is real. Uh, the island residents used catchment systems for drinking because of the contaminated aquifer, and so they caught rainwater and stored it uh, in various vessels and tanks on site. Uh, this brackish groundwater was being cleaned uh, to protect wildlife in the ocean. The total cost of cleanup was $43 million. It happened that my brother-in-law was actually the cleanup manager for this site. So I had kind of an interesting uh, personal point of view of some of the dynamics and the challenges, uh, especially the challenges of mobilization all, uh, of all of the cleanup equipment and personnel to an extraordinarily remote uh, location. The remediation approach in this particular site was a steam uh, injection vapor uh, extraction system. The idea by heating up the steam, uh, it would uh, make uh, many of the fuel oils flow a little bit easier, uh, extract off of the sands. It was the world's largest such system ever used at Midway. 
the petroleum hydrocarbon contaminated water uh, was extracted from about 300 wells uh, that were drilled around the island and run through various tanks. The uh, vapor was burned off and the fuel oil was actually collected. It was quite interesting that the fuel oil that they collected were actually used in the generators they were using to power the pumps and the operations on site. So in a certain sense, uh, they closed the system, recovered much of the fuel oil. They actually used it in the vehicles and the mechanical operations on site to essentially power the cleanup operations. Purified groundwater from this uh, uh, was actually returned to the ground through about a series of 200 injection wells on site. So this uh, 33,000 gallons of petroleum hydrocarbons that actually recovered were used to power uh, two 16-cylinder generators uh, that worked around the clock. Uh, there was no leftover fuel at the end of all of this that needed to be shipped off. So that was a, a, a strong positive in terms of this. The crews removed about 100 underground jet fuel tanks. Uh, they included two with a capacity of 2 million gallons each. And so this was a, a fairly large-scale uh, construction destruction job. Uh, there were 7,000 cubic yards of soil contaminated with petroleum hydrocarbons that had to be excavated. Uh, the contaminated soil was either stabilized with cement or used as road fill on the surface. Uh, just to uh, make some sort of use and to get it out of the uh, potential aquifer. There were marine salvage operations because, again, during military operations, if a truck didn't work, it was pushed uh, out into the atoll, into the water, get it out of the way. Um, there were 68 vehicles and 300 batteries that were actually dumped into the lagoon. Uh, Navy divers went in and detonated 23 gas cylinders uh, that were in the harbor. Various water, sediment, and biota were sampled. Uh, there were some initial concerns about extensive marine pollution uh, that was not borne out in terms of the sampling results. Uh, the Navy uh, retiring the facilities uh, uh, were actually uh, kept on, on site. They didn't destroy all the facilities. The idea was uh, to keep this island active, not only as a breeding ground, but also as an ecotourism facility. Uh, you had to have a little bit of facility, including a landing strip, uh, to actually uh, uh, encourage this ecotourism and the recovery uh, uh, to the, to the uh, island and the people that actually still live on the island. This is an interesting quote. This is by uh, one of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Service uh, managers that actually uh, worked on the Midway Island Refuge. It's telling in terms of uh, giving us a sensitivity of what uh, we can do with some of these historical contaminations. The quote goes like this, Midway will never be taken back to what it was before man got here, but this is an example of humans cleaning up and giving back to wildlife. And with the world's population expanding, there are not many places like that. And so this is uh, an encouraging uh, recovery operation, encouraging in that uh, we know we can do it, uh, perhaps discouraging that the problem uh, happened uh, to start with. Uh, environmental sensitivities of the modern military are greatly improved. Uh, what used to be, for example, uh, ships that discharged uh, their waste uh, in ports uh, are now have onboard waste management treatment systems for a variety of wastes. Uh, so we have come full circle, uh, including even our military operations and our management of potential chemicals that can impact the environment.
Well, this gives you uh, uh, the closure of these four lectures uh, on environmental case studies. Uh, we've tried to address uh, a range of concerns, a range of, uh, I think, interesting cases. Uh, unfortunately, again, to, to apologize to you that we could not necessarily get to the depth of each one of these. Uh, uh, as you can see, Midway Island, uh, a half dozen slides was actually $43 million worth of operations. All of the technical reports associated with many of these sites and the governmental authorities associated with these sites are usually available uh, on the internet uh, or in various library formats or case study reviews done by various professional uh, environmental historical reviewers. Those should give you, again, some sensitivity of some of the dynamics that apply to the basic principles that you are learning in this course. Next time, what we'll do following a midterm exam is we'll start a, a brief uh, uh, analysis of the concern about endocrine disruption before we start finishing up the semester's material with some of the active management resources that we have in terms of public process, things like environmental laws, things like setting up quality assurance project plans to actually go into these contaminated sites and do the best jobs that we can with available resources. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.